Let us gather together and experience the goodness of God. I'm Pastor Trey Comstock. We'll begin with our scripture of the week, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, and verses 31 through 34, and a piece by me entitled, On Rugs and Paintings by Sad Dutchman. Then Pastor Emily and I will talk scripture, and will then be joined by Luke Edwards, Associate Director for Church Development for the Western North Carolina Annual Conference, who also has a new book out called Becoming Church, a trail guide for starting fresh expressions. He will talk to us about doing exactly that, starting a fresh expression of this thing we call the church. But first, a reading from Luke chapter 12 verses 13 through 21, and verses 31 through 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, And he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will put down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. During my trip to Turkey, a man tried to sell me a rug. More specifically, we ended up at a Turkish carpet sales pitch disguised as a demonstration of traditional craft. The proprietor, who made the pitch, could best be described as Turkish Russell Crow. Originally from Turkey, he grew up in Australia, and from that experience, gained the accent, gestures, and general look of Russell Crow to an uncanny degree. I now know what it would be like if Mr. Crow got into carpet and not acting in music. I was the wrong person for this man's pitch. Turkish carpets require an incredible amount of hand labor and thus their cost matches the hour count. For a modest room-sized carpet, the amount comes to the several thousands to many thousands, and I'm more of a few hundred bucks kind of impulse buyer. My growing lower middle class sensibilities notwithstanding, the part of this experience that I still fail to shake was the pitch of the rugs as investments. In part, their construction gives them incredible longevity, The way the craftspeople weave the rugs means that the core knots of the weave get stronger, not weaker, each time one steps on them. So a century-old rug may lack the sheen of newness, but has a greater strength than one just manufactured. I found that fascinating. However, 
he parlayed that objectively interesting factoid into an argument that one should buy these rugs as investments, that they will only increase in monetary value over time. To buy these admittedly amazing piece of craftsmanship not only gives you and your descendants a nice object, but an investment in the future, a stored up treasure. Unfortunately, I regret to report that he may know carpets, but he doesn't represent the state of the United States' second-hand rug market. Servants of Christ received two giant and antique Persian rugs as a donation over a decade ago. We dutifully insured them for their purchase price of over $10,000 each. If our friend Turkish Russell Crowe is to be believed, these assets should have increased in value. We came to a season as a church where our financial need outweighed our need for high-end carpets, and we hoped to unlock the value. Now, Turkish Russell Crow will gladly tell you why Turkish rugs beat Persian rugs, and maybe that explains our issue. Still, our rug expert here in Houston warned us only to expect a couple thousand dollars per rug, far less than our purchase or insurance price. These rugs may be stronger than at the time of their manufacture, but as an asset, they declined in value. Hence, Jesus' words here in Luke 12 constitute not only sound spiritual advice, but sound financial advice. I've walked through too many thrift stores full of wedding dresses and fancy dishware and solid wood furniture to fully buy the argument that the nice stuff you buy in this life will only grow in value. Certainly, our progeny may find some use for our stuff. My benchtop toolbox belonged to Sydney's grandfather. My best workbench and a good chunk of my shop tools came from my paternal grandfather. Our drinking glasses belonged to my grandmother. Our son's dresser belonged to Sydney's grandmother. The armchair where I read my comic books came to us from my great-grandparents by way of my parents. We replaced one couch in our living room, a hand-me-down for my best friend, with a nicer couch, a hand-me-down for my parents. The rest of our furniture that didn't come from Ikea came from thrift stores or estate sales. Nice stuff can be enjoyed in this life and may have a use after we no longer require it. The increasing in value piece is what's fickle at best. The 17th century Dutch painter Janans Vermeer painted some of the most valuable pieces of canvas in the world. The record sale price for a Vermeer set in 1998 was over $30 million. Yet, until the 19th century, he received little attention, and himself died in poverty and obscurity. Another Dutchman, the 19th century painter Vincent van Gogh, similarly now has works that sell in the many tens of millions, but died in depression and poverty. His works only increased in value after his death. For every Vermeer and van Gogh, there are hundreds of sad Dutch painters who never rose to prominence and whose work may only be of passing value. One of the refrains on any of the shows where people bring in their treasures or the treasures that they inherit is that more often we overvalue what we have rather than undervalue it. 
For every person on Antiques Roadshow or Pawn Stars who has something unexpectedly worth a life-changing amount of money, there are dozens who thought they had something that turned out to be nothing. One can never know what will become weirdly valuable to future generations, what will increase in value, or what will just be another painting in the attic. Instead, we should follow Christ's sound financial advice, invest in God's kingdom as our legacy. When I die, I don't want my funeral to be about all the weird stuff that I've accumulated. I don't want a vintage video game, Lego, and typewriter-themed funeral. Rather, I pray that they will be able to tell of how I made a difference in the world, or in the lives of people, or in raising my family. The saddest funeral that I ever officiated started with a call from a funeral home asking me to do a service for someone that I didn't know. I went through my normal routine of trying to get to know the person, but all that anyone could tell me was that he, like John Deere tractors, watched a lot of television and liked to gamble. I like a fair amount of TV, am sure that John Deere tractors deserve admiration, and feel that if you can afford to lose the money, go ahead and lose it at a casino. Who am I to judge? The really sad part came from the fact that even his family only had that to say. I got nothing about him as an amazing grandfather, a good father who imparted advice, or even as a strong but silent source of strength. He seemed to have invested very little in relationships, helping others, or making a difference. The sadness, for me, in that funeral service came from how few people cared that he'd gone. We all by now have internalized that we cannot take it all with us. But the parable of the rich fool pushes us beyond that. In it, Jesus asked the deeper question, more probing, about our legacy and where our most important investments lie. As it says in Luke 12, verse 20, God's voice came directly to our protagonist in that verse. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Are carpets or paintings by sad Dutchmen may end up at thrift stores. But our work for God's kingdom, particularly the people that we've invested in, live well beyond us. So as you heard in the piece that you just heard, that's how that works, um, this is looking at the rich young fool as a, as I think, you know, you know, perhaps a very traditional take on it, of a question of priorities. We're in a sermon series um, that is looking at the, you know, priorities or missed priorities of modern life, what we're calling the anti-rat race. And this happened to be a scripture I didn't preach on because I was off on Sunday, but it is one that I end up in that that I think fits fits in that same kind of theme of we get burdened with all of this stuff and the stuff acquisition cycle um, and it's not the th it ends up not being the thing that's fulfilling it you know turns out that you know Jesus is giving you know sound financial advice as much as sound spiritual advice of the 
the like cycle of stuff acquisitioning and thinking that that's going to accomplish some big goal for us just seldom plays out. I also maybe maybe got a little weirdly hooked on talking about very sad Dutch painters, which when I went into writing that piece was maybe not what I thought I was going to do, um, but is what came out. Um, and, and, and like in both of those painters, yes, if you happen to have bought a Van Gogh or a Vermeer 400 or 150 years ago, sure, you'd be making out like bank, but that's so random uh, that the truth is, it's just stuff, you know, surf acquisition will not bring you even the peace and security that it pitches like it's going to bring you. It reminded me a lot of like the Beanie Baby craze yeah. Yeah, or yeah. the whatever else collector item that people said was going to have value. And then maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Or if you've ever had to clean out the home of a loved yeah. one who right. has yeah, exactly. either moved into a nursing home or passed away, you know, your your grandmother's or great grandmother's or your parents' home, you know, how much stuff was there that they thought for sure you were going to want. So they hung on to it for you just in case. Or, or, uh, or, or the, the, like the pitch from the rug salesman, right? Like that it was pitched as culturally pitched as this is going to accumulate in value this will always be a value you're always going to want china you're always going to want whatever right um and that those things investing in these things now will you know pay off dividends not just for this generation for for future generations and like every once in a while that works but so often it does not And thrift stores are full, full of grandma's china that, you know, was so very precious. And you never even ate on it because it was too precious to eat on. And now it's in a thrift store and no one has eaten on it. And Well, well, I I didn't bring this up in the piece, but like, okay, so there's a lot of like weirdly specific consumer appliances that also end up in thrift stores. You know, side note, I spent a lot of time in thrift stores. Um, a lot of our computer equipment comes from thrift stores because it, <laughs> you know, becomes outdated, gets shucked out, and then is of incredible use for churches. There are churches around the country full of stuff I have salvaged from thrift stores. But, like, there's a lot of, like, bread makers and ice cream makers and air fryers and Keurigs that just, you know, you paid $200 for $300 for because it, it was going to be, oh, I can just make bread anytime I want. Yeah, but you're not going to. Like, you're just... My grandmother is the only person I ever knew who actually used a bread maker that she had, um, and she I, did. I use my bread maker, to be fair, but I'm a weirdo in the kitchen. Yeah, but, but so. like, yeah, yeah. So, no, I, 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 I'm not saying that maybe no... I would not make... Unlike fruitcakes that I think no one ever eats, I will not going to make the argument that no one has ever used a bread maker but I'm saying I see a lot of bread makers at thrift stores. Actually, this is fundamentally breaking the company that makes air fryers. Um, so there was this report, whatever, came out that um, the people who make air fryers are really struggling because they made air fryers too good. And so no one else, you you buy an air fryer, it does the thing it says in the tin. I don't happen to own, own one, and this podcast is not sponsored by air fryers, although I'm open to it. Um, but... <laughs> that people aren't buying a second one because it does what it says in the tin and then there's no need to buy another one. 
And, like, they were kind of counting on getting in this, like, consumer capitalism cycle that, like, people just keep buying more stuff and then dumping the stuff that they have. Um, and it fundamentally broke the company's bottom line, even though, I want to be clear, it really does sound like they made a really solid product. Um, because they just kind of hoped that they would become one of the things that people just keep buying to accumulate so it's like accumulate and dump and accumulate and dump which is also like that is also not going to set you free there is this like we just have that cultural assumption and you know i I sit in you know churches end up the depositors of a lot of this stuff that's how we end up with our own set of persian rugs right is like you know they were owned by someone's family and they're like oh we're gonna join the church and see this great asset and i'm like yeah okay this is long before my time and i get here and it's like yeah we have these rugs and they're really gonna help us and i'm like "Uh uh-huh tell me more about that and uh (laughs) didn't work out right like it just didn't work out that these so then it becomes if it is not these things then what if it is and that's where you know the scripture talks about the you know the kingdom of god your treasure in heaven i kind of read that as we invest in relationships we invest in people right um we don't we don't invest in these this the stuff of it the stuff of it the you know the scripture was not saying don't have wealth don't have stuff um you know there are scriptures that talk about selling all of your things but the same author talks about you know church members who own homes and who yep. do things um you know it's it's not that the author of the scripture was anti stuff it was that he was pro uh, treasures in heaven it was not putting your value in the things of this world it was not counting on the things of this world to set you free it was counting on um, what are the things that we can build that will actually last, that do actually have eternal consequences, not just that momentary, you know, uh, life in this lifetime um, consequence. Yeah, there's I think the, like this and things like the parable, of the talents, right, like roll together, right? Like this is the the issue with the rich young fool is his like you know, very chill, like, and I tried to give it that read, um, it's like, don't worry, soul, we've got this, it's gonna be great, right, that, like, he had this stuff, which, again, is not inherently bad, but then he saw the, that that stuff is the thing he could say to his soul, we can chill now, eat, drink, and be merry, my brother, right, that, like, that, that it was the having of this, the you know, Barnes full stuff that was going to be the thing that fundamentally gives his life meaning, right? That like he has accumulated the stuff and now he can live a life of peace rather than he's accumulated the stuff. And now this stuff, the contents in his case, the contents of his now bigger Barnes um, as a way to invest the kingdom, as a way to do social entrepreneurship. Um, this is, you know, he is the person that's been given X amount of talents, buries them in the ground. And again, this it's the same message, right? Like, this is fundamentally not the purpose we're talking about here. 
Right. It's a warning against greed. It's a warning against being Ebenezer Scrooge. Yes. Right? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's a Christmas carol. Um, it's it's not that having the money is bad. It's having the money and shutting out the tiny Tims of the world is not the way to happiness. We did a, um, we, I did a similar sermon. I did not, and I didn't preach on this one, but in a, in a world before this podcast, I did a sermon um, on a similar text where I literally opened with the lines, Scrooge was dead to begin with. Right. <laughs> that like, you know, I don't know that, um, you know, that the, the, the a Christmas Carol is written with this kind of scripture open, but it sure does feel like, you know, the, a Christmas Carol is written with this, these, these scriptures solidly in mind um, that Charles Dickens obviously raised in a, you know, a very Christian culture would have known these scriptures and this really, you know, I think Ebenezer Scrooge slot is a really good slots into um, this. I mean, because you even have the right. like, he gets this glint, he gets the ghost of Christmas future, right? Right. Um, where he's going to die, and you know, there's the, you know, I, I was in the play The Christmas Carol um, when of I, course was, you were. <laughs> I was, you know, um, in I think it was, I think it was eighth grade. Doesn't matter. I played Old Joe. Um, which is the the guy dividing up Scrooge's stuff. And, you know, in that scene, at first, you don't know it's Scrooge. Um, it's just like, oh, what nice drapes. Oh, I bet you didn't use this. Blanket's still warm. It's definitely um, a line in that um, scene. Um, the Muppets do it great. Old Joe is a spider. Um, that is the best version that's the of best. It's actually the Muppets pretty accurate to the text too yeah. um, but you don't know it's Scrooge and so it's all these this finery that he has been using and then you know it's basically like hey the world's not gonna miss him at least someone's gonna get his good stuff um, and then it turns out it's Scrooge right um, yeah this is the you know Scrooge is the you know Scrooge is the old old fool um, or Scrooge is shown to be when he was of an age um, the rich young fool that at some point you're gonna die all of us are gonna die this guy just happened to die early. Um, and you're not, this stuff does not And you gonna, can't take it with you. You literally can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. But not so even So what that. are you going to do? So what are you going to do? But it's not, I think, I think this one goes even beyond it can't take it with you to, not only can you not take it with you, it's not even going to do what you want it to do in this life or for for the next generation, right? It's just not, there's no guarantee that this stuff is going to accomplish what you think it's going to accomplish. This rug that you buy is not necessarily going to create a long-term asset for your people. So maybe remember the relationship building part, right? Um, You know, humankind is your business, as, you know, Charles Dickens wrote in his play. It's, It's not about the stuff. It's about the relationships that you build. It's about the people that you meet on the way. It's about who you are to those people, on the way that matters. Yeah. And I mean, that's, and that's, you know, one of those pieces that makes, you know, we get, I got into this in the piece too. This is one of those pieces that makes a happy funeral, a happy funeral and a sad funeral, sad funeral to me. Right. Mm-hmm. There's some element of like, if it was someone taken before their time, that can also be a sad funeral. Um, but that's the, that's even that healthy kind of sad, right. Where it's a, a group mourning and a group healing process. The truly sad funerals are the Ebenezer Scrooge funerals are the ones where it's like almost no one's there and no one has much to say or anything to say. 
and then you know you get you know the, the guy I talk about in the piece literally it was the even the the coffin blanket was a John Deere blanket which again I got nothing I got I do not have tractor beef tractors are cool <laughs> Um, you know, I, I have shows I like, I'm not myself a gambler, but like, I get it. Right. But that was all they had for that guy. And that was, you know, you know, it is, it was fair. I don't, I didn't make this connection at the time, but it is very reminiscent of Scrooge's funeral at the end of, a, you know, towards the end of a Christmas Carol, where it's just like, again, the Muppets portray it beautifully. You know, it's like. Very few people, even the people he knew in business, are like, oh, I'm not going to go to that. They sound like Unless that. there's lunch, right? Unless, Unless there's, there's a free lunch. food. That'll Unless go for the free food. lunch is provided. I, exactly. Again, <laughs> I, I might have seen the Muppet movie more times than I've read the I have read the book <laughs> than the play. I don't know if that lunch line is in the book or the Muppets. But, you know, it's a, as far as I am concerned, that is the definitive telling. Um, of A Christmas Carol. Uh, my, my brother actually, uh, back in grade school, I had to do a book report on A Christmas Carol. And my brother, who is an economist now, famously efficient. Um, and what he realized is, well, he could just watch the Muppet movie. Um, and then he did have the book. And so what he did is he made sure that the endings were the same. So that, like, if he could write about the ending, um, and it was... That, that like you know that maybe Charles Dickens didn't go in this totally other direction, which I which he doesn't. Um, and the Muppet is a faithful enough telling um, that you can do a fairly thorough book report. Not that I'm suggesting uh, cheating, but this is probably better than just feeding your homework to ChatGPT. Uh, of yeah, so you just, he watched the Muppet Christmas Carol, which I guess you know he did take in the themes. Um, I do a lot of my professional reading via audiobooks. It's not that different. And, uh, yeah, he just, but he did, like, my brother is a genius and double checked that the endings were the same. <laughs> so, again, incredible. <laughs> according to the definitive work, they're only going to show up if lunch is provided. And, right. and that, and so, again, it is the like, it asks the questions of the scripture. And I think this is, this is one of those things that's timeless that we maybe think is the disease of a modern soul, but clearly isn't, right? that we think the stuff acquisition process that has only been accelerated over the past 2000 years is going to be the thing that saves us. And then actually it is the human story that is going to be the thing that, you know, means that we're leaving the world a better place and money can be a part of that, right? You can become a Florentine, Easy for me to say. Philanthropist. There we go. There, we can do there this. it is. I, be- I believe. Um, you can become a philanthropist, and that's going to inherently help people if you do it right. But that's still mm-hmm. about using what you have, even if what you have is vast wealth. You know, kingdom of God has always needed rich people. And read the book of Philemon, right? Paul, Paul writes a letter. To, you know, not many people get their own book of the New Testament. Admittedly, it's a very short book, but Philemon gets his own book, and he is this rich guy who is hosting a church in his house, um, who is rich enough to have had a slave, which is the the person at issue here. Um, and so clearly, the, even the early Christian movement had its share of rich people. Um, you know, Paul made some wealthy friends. It's how he got, you know, entree in Corinth. Um, it's how he had 
allies in Philippi, right? Like, it was not about, you know, this is not some, like, money bad. It's the right. love of money. Even though, you know, other places in Scripture, it's the love of money, not the having of money. Right. Money is not the root of all evil. It is the love of money that is the root. Things that are not in Scripture that often get misquoted. The love of money right. is what. And that's it's, what this author is, you know, arguing against here, is making sure that you're not um, storing up your treasures here on earth. Right. That, it, you know, that you don't look at your vast stores of wealth and go, I will now eat, drink, and be merry, friends. It will be all right. Because uh, we also all know that all of that can disappear overnight. Well, sure. Well, yeah. You and know, not, you know. Markets crash and disasters happen and jobs get lost and personal crises happen and, and your stuff is not the thing that saves you in those times. Having done a I, I, I was uh, I worked at a homeless shelter um, during the financial crisis, um, and I have worked in prisons too. And I, what I what I walked away from both of those experiences from is exactly that: that like all of us are like two to three financial bad decisions or financial malfeasance on somebody else's part away from homelessness. Almost mm-hmm. all of us. Um, and all of us are only one bad decision away from prison, right? Mm-hmm. That, like, most of the people I met on the inside doing prison ministry um, are just, it's just, just normal people, right? Like, mm-hmm. we have this image, like, the hardened criminals. And, like, I guess those people exist. But the truth is there's a lot of, like, what's the difference between, you know, me and, you know, when I was the prison, I did a lot of prison ministry work. I happened to be the same age as the majority of the folks in that unit um, of, of TDCJ, of Texas Department of Criminal Justice. Um, and, you know, we all grew up in the same kind of places and we all grew up with the same kind of interests. And I was, you know, I made my own fair share of, you know, teenage and early 20s based truly horrific decisions. Um, and I didn't get caught and I had family structures that could support me. Um, if I hadn't had those things, you know, it's no different, right? Like, mm-hmm. everything we have, and it's not just death that can take it away. Um, I've been t- I've been talking, work at our community development ministry um, up the road once a week, and talking to those kids of, like, careers and stuff, and I remind them that, like, you know, uh, we talk a lot about the financial crisis because we've been talking about, like, jobs you can have and, you know, homes and, like, how do you – but um, you know they grew up in the world of kind of immediately post financial crisis or during the financial crisis these you know not to feel ancient but like these folks were born in like 09 2010 right like these are uh you know 08 07 right um uh-huh yeah makes you feel a little older it makes me feel <laughs> an- ancient of days right um that i was teaching you know people that could be their parents when i was when i was 22 teaching middle schoolers um my middle schoolers are like 23 24 25 now it's uh reminds one of their own mortality 
And then they start having kids, and then you go, oh my gosh, how does that child have a child? But they're really grown-ups, and they're just always children in our mind. Because once they're your students, they're your students forever. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, you know, I, I had a little bit of this. Um, a friend of mine um, had a kid while we were in high school, um, and I got to know that kid. And so, like, you know, that kid is, like, 22 now, right? Like, that kid has finished college. And I'm like... I remember when you were born and I was in high school and now you are not just like, like a, you were like a real adult, real adult Uh, doing adulting things now. Yeah. You, you like, (laughs) you know, pay rent and taxes, right? Like the concept of that being paying rent and, you know, as my, you know, I had kids a little later than average. And so the fact that, you know, I, as a 37 year old have an eight year old phases me not at all. Right. Um, that, that doesn't seem, that does not bother me. I feel perfectly reasonable that I have an eight-year-old. The fact that I know a twenty-two-year-old whose you know mother is two months younger than me—that's the bit that makes me um, <laughs> uh, makes me itchy. But um, speaking of relationships that have been invested yeah. in things that matter, things that you know endure beyond the stuff that you don't probably still have the same you know stuff that you did in high school but you still have some of the same relationships that you have in high school well that ends up being the like those are those are the markers of life that end up mattering right those are the those are the the treasures right like that's even you know, it's even Viking immortality, right? Take Christian immortality out of this question for a second. All this is very much about Christian immortality. Even in Viking immortality is, you know, Valhalla is an analogy for the fact that your people will remember you, that Mm -hmm. you have lived a life such that your people will remember you. And they describe that in all this kind of mythomagic terms. But it didn't end... The upcoming Dia de Muertos, the, yeah. you know, you're a, who's going to put you on their ofrenda, you know? Right, yeah, yeah. Who's going to be... It's re- right, yeah. remembering your family, you know? And remember, and, and that that is the, like, that in some ways has been the marker of of good, ordinary human life, right? Sure, we have the people who are so rich, we name buildings after them, but that's not most people. For most people the way they are remembered are in those relationship stories. Even if those relationship stories get tied to object, right? Like I have my, you know, grandfather's tools and Sydney's grandfather's toolbox, right? But those have like very little monetary value. Those tools are got used. Uh, they're just, you know, they're nicer tools than I can afford, but like, or I'm not, they're not getting passed down to another generation. They're probably going to get fried in my wood shop at some point, which my grandfather would have been totally fine with. Um, but, like, that is also a, more about how those people invested in us emotionally, right? That, like, building things is a thing that me and my grandfather shared. Um, and so it is nice to have his tools. His tools are fine. That workbench is pretty darn nice. But they have certainly not increased in value since he bought them um, because he used the spit out of them. And I'm going to, you know use them and they're going to fall apart and eventually I'll feel a little sad about replacing them and then remind myself that no he would be mad if I was holding on to something that didn't work um right because really it's about the like how he inspired me to learn to build things right like that's the that's the invest that's the kingdom of God piece right that like he poured that kind of knowledge and family legacy into me and I can carry that forward and now like 
with the thing we were at this weekend, uh, my son, who is getting, has, you know, to brag a little bit, has a 100 in math right now. Um, we were at a NASA display. Um, and he was like, you know, hey, how do I become an astronaut? And I'm like, well, you've got two options. Um, you can become a pilot, um, which is not his skill set. Um, or you become like an engineer or a scientist. And he's like, oh, I could do that. And I could build robots and I could do that. And like, but like, he likes to do things in the shop. He likes to do build things. And so that's the legacy from my grandfather, my grandfather, his great grandfather, who he got to know a little bit, um, carrying forward. That's the real, like, invest in the kingdom of God, invest, which is inherently people, not place. Mm hmm. Which actually, I think, transitions after a very short break uh, to uh, bringing our guest, uh, Luke Edwards, into this conversation uh, to talk about, like, what, how do churches invest in relationship uh, and build fresh expressions uh, for ministry uh, for uh, the 21st century and beyond? Um, and so uh, after uh, y'all, on y'all's end, we'll hear a little bit of theme music, and then we'll be back for us. We're going to take a very short break, and then be back but either way we'll be back with our segment how to restart a church so uh, today we have the privilege of having uh, luke edwards with us who is the associate director of church development for the western north carolina conference of the united methodist church and he is also a trainer for fresh expressions u.s uh, that's where I first had the pleasure of hearing from him last month at a clergy academy for the Northwest Texas Conference um, of the United Methodist Church in Lubbock. Um, but Luke was also the founding pastor of, or one of the founding pastors of King Street Church, which is a, a network of fresh expressions all across uh, North Carolina now. Um, he has written a very good read. It's a wonderful book called Becoming Church a trail guide for starting fresh expressions. Um, it's a very worthwhile read. If you haven't picked it up yet, I do recommend it. It uh, really explores the holistic models of, of church-based community engagement, of, of how your church can uh, start to talk about those uh, micro-faith communities uh, based on shared interest. And he's explored everything from dinner church to messy church to uh, warrior churches for veterans. Um, you truly have a really great, uh, unique perspective on church outside the box of the traditional models, um, which made me really excited to invite you on the podcast because uh, these are things that Trey and I have done for years, but we just didn't have the verbiage to call it uh, fresh expressions. Uh, so we would love to hear more about uh, what you're doing and, and what you've done. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed uh, listening to y'all's conversation, just thinking through the um, the idea of, of holding on to too much stuff. Yeah. Um, but mm -hmm. it, I, my mind kind of goes to our kind of ecclesiology and, and all the extra stuff that we've held on to in kind of models of church. And so Fresh Expressions is really a, um, a kind of letting go of some of the extra and, and just thinking about what's the, the bare minimum that we need to be church. Um, and that that can be a really helpful, um, a helpful approach in our increasingly post-Christian communities um, and our increasingly, uh, our neighbors that are increasingly suspicious yeah. of big institutions yes. and therefore suspicious of institutional forms of religion. Um, 
so yeah, I think that the extra fluff then becomes a burden for us um, in in offering uh, a, a church home for our neighbors. Um, I also thought too about just the legacy that y'all were talking about, and um, I I think that Fresh Expressions is is trying to discover what is the important aspects of our inheritance that mm. we've received from prior generations that we are now the stewards of and how can we pass it on to the next generation um, and it won't be the same as it as it was when we received it as it is right now and then um, as it will become it'll it'll take on new shape but there in the midst of that is that um, that essential inheritance so we have to kind of wrestle with what that is yeah and that you know, I think so, you know, for a little bit of our own context, which listeners to the show know. Um, so we're in a, a giant cathedral shaped object built in the early 60s um, because uh, in Houston, Houston was going to the moon. Actually, in that case, quite literally. Um, and where we are is where a lot of NASA money was at the time. But then NASA money moved south. And so we have this giant thousand seater thing that um has you know not been maintained well and so for us that like one of the like we have to we think about that legacy question a lot right like what is our legacy and if you think of our legacy as this building we've got a problem but maybe our legacy can be the ability for us to continue as a religious community in a form that looks radically different, but that it's that the legacy can be, at least the way we think about it, is the ability to do ministry in this place. This neighborhood needs Jesus as much as it ever needed Jesus. Um, the neighborhood just looks really different, and the world looks really different than this facility was built for. Right. Yeah. Um, I I think when we start, so fresh expressions are, is new forms of church. Um, and they exist for people that aren't already connected to church. And so um, when I meet with folks that come to the trainings that I help lead or uh, when someone reads my book, uh, often someone will come to that with the hope that this will save their church. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, I'm sure. Yeah, and, and, I'm sure. Yeah, and, uh-huh. and in that is like save the church that they've known. Uh-huh. Um, and. And to me, like that can be kind of a dangerous motivation for reaching out Amen. to your neighbors, because yeah. then you see your neighbors as targets to kind of uh, reach the end that you want to reach, um, and that's not how it works. <laughs> uh, and so, um, so what I encourage folks is to think a little deeper than that, and to think, okay, why does your church matter to you? Why don't you want it to end? Um, why are you worried that it's uh, uh, that it's struggling. Um, and if people f- reflect on that, then they think about how the church has been a place for them to encounter God. The church has been a place for them to find community. Um, it's been a place where like really important family memories have been made, whether there's weddings or baptisms or, um, you know, the potluck after church on Sunday, whatever those, m- those memories are. Um, that's the thing that they deep that they deep down inside want to carry on you know um and so if if that's our motivation for for our neighbors to find those things um then that's a healthy motivation for reaching out 
um, because that's, you, you know, wanting uh, our neighbors to encounter God, wanting our neighbors to find belonging. Those are good things. Um, but to keep a building going or keep an institution going, not good motivations. Yeah. And our neighbors will sniff that out real yeah. fast and run away real fast. <laughs> right. Um, so. What are you trying to save here? Um, so, right. I, so, you know, the, the model you lay out in the book, and I, 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 I'm cheating. I actually have the, I have the Kindle version of the book open in my other monitor. I'm going to confess that, um, <laughs> that I, you know, uh, did not perhaps. Yeah, there make, isn't a Muppet movie. Of no, there's not yet. a Muppet movie. And so <laughs> I do actually have the, the I'm going to confess, I do have the book open. Um, but I, I liked, you know, I, I liked the six. So there's, this, this, there's these six steps. Listen, loving people, building community, exploring discipleship, church taking shape, and do it again. What I, what I wanted to ask you about specifically, um, because I think this is often at least for me in thinking about a fresh expression, about a community, is about that listening step, right? For our own context, right? Um, our, especially the English speaking side of our congregation is so disconnected from the other folks who do speak, you know, we're in a 75% uh, Latino area. We are now actually over a 75% Latino church because we have a uh, we have our own fresh expression in house. We have a um, an immigrant focused um, worship service that is now the majority of our church. Um, but as we think about the future of English speaking ministries, um, how do you, um, you know? what advice kind of what methodology do you have for like being able to listen um, when maybe you are really disconnected uh, from the people around you? Yeah. Um, so that was my favorite chapter to write of the book actually was the oh, wow. listening yeah, chapter. Yeah. Um, I, I really enjoyed doing the research for that. And, um, and actually, so I, I started my doctoral work a year ago and, for that focus and, and creating a listening process for churches wow. um, that either want to start fresh expressions or reconnect with their community, um, try to shift their ministry. But it's, it's called uh, the spiritual listening plan, and it's this um, holistic community assessment. Um, and you can find it at thelisteningchurch.com slash plan, and it's free. Uh, it's an interactive PDF. But the idea is that uh, to discern God's... Uh, call for our churches, particularly our churches that are stuck. Yeah. We have to become more attentive to God, more attentive to ourselves, and then more attentive to our neighbors. Um, and so there's some activities within that plan that can help you do each of those. Um, and and so for me, like uh, contemplative spirituality has been an important way for me to increase my attentiveness yeah. to God and to God's voice. Um, so like centering prayer, uh, Lectio Divina, um, the uh, daily examine are just a few of those practices that have helped with that. Um, and then being attentive to ourselves, to our congregation, um, doing some real hard reflection um, of, uh, all right, let's, let's explore our story. Let's think about when we were deeply connected to the community um, and let's explore what the state of our connection to the community is right now. Um, and, and trying to discern, um, uh, that the culture that we have within our church, the the places uh, that are might be a strong place for connection with the community, and the places where we're really going to struggle and we need to address. 
Um, and then lastly, listening to our neighbors. And, and to me, uh, a couple of the mistakes that happen in that, that I've seen in my work on the ground, but also my work uh, at a, a regional level. Um, so one mistake is we immediately jump to meeting needs. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah. So Naturally. so we, we were like, oh, man, we're so disconnected from the church. Let's meet some needs of the neighbors. And and it's it's a, a not holistic way of viewing our neighbors. It's viewing our neighbors as people to be fixed yeah. as opposed to, you know, relationships to be built, kind of like what y'all were talking about, that um, that um, that those friendships, those relationships, those, um, you know, new types of, of church family, those are the, the ways that we can interact with our neighbors. But if we start by meeting needs, by, uh, you know, paying for people's bills or uh, giving people food without the relationship piece, then we can actually keep our neighbors at a distance, yeah. even though we're serving them. Well, yeah, because we, um, we, so- we become that we just become the donor, right? We are. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about this on this show before that is thinking us as the full vessel and them as the empty vessel and let us as a full vessel fill the empty vessel. But that, you know, that's yeah. a really, you know, that's a tough conversation starter for building genuine community oh you have needs let me give this to you right like and that's like right. it's not a bad thing to do but it's certainly yeah it's it it's a tough way to start community building right yeah and i, I study social work in undergrad and like so i learned about how social workers do these kind of interventions and like it's research based like yeah. it's empowerment based like there is uh like all these principles that uh that actually work and the church doesn't really utilize any of them. Yeah. Uh, So, so my, uh, my, (laughs) one of my masters is in public health and I did, so I did, I studied health programming. Right. Which is again, like, um, there are like methodologies of like, this can work, this can be empowering, this can be disempowering. And then you look at, you know, very well-meaning church work internationally and you go, Oh Jesus. Um, I've told this story on the show before, but the, you know, um, there was a ministry that all they did was dig wells. And so they dug a well and then they saw that no one was using that well. And they're like, why is no one using the well? Well, it turns out that the women in the community um, had their only alone time, their only them time, their only like female community time on the daily walk to get water. And so it upended their whole like self-care ritual, essentially, psychological self-care ritual. Um, to take away the walk to the river. And so what you, if you were going to dig a well, you needed to combine that with some sort of you know female empowerment, some other space. Um, but like just digging that well didn't do it. You address yeah, that so in your books um, too. Sorry to interrupt you. You address yeah. that in your books too, some about the, um, the need for community because the pandemic is that we're lonely um, right. as a whole, that there is a need for community, that found family, that chosen family. Yeah, yeah, I, I think about how many of our ministry, how many of our churches have food ministries, yeah. and hung, hunger affects like twenty percent of our uh, country, something like that. But Cigna's loneliness report says that fifty to sixty percent of Americans are lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, it's a huge need. Um, so so yeah, that that's one um, mistake that I see us making, and then another one is kind of a, uh, and this is more within the United Methodist uh, Church. I don't know if other 
traditions deal with it the same way, but we like to utilize um, demographic reports uh, to kind of understand our community. And those are helpful, um, but I've seen us just kind of run the report and then say, all right, your listening's done. Um, without ever talking to our neighbors on the ground. Um, so, so within that, uh, that uh, listening to our neighbors um, section of the spiritual listening plan, I encourage folks to, um, to go on, to go walk the community, um, yeah. to prayerfully walk the community, to invite someone that is uh, a local to um, show them around the yeah. community, to set up interviews with neighbors, um, and, and to ask more holistic questions than just what do you need um, yeah. that we can do, but to say like, hey, like, what are you passionate about? What yeah. what do you love about this community? Um, what is uh, something that you would change about the community? What what are your spiritual practices? Uh, if you were looking for a spiritual community, what would it look like? Yeah. Like different kinds of questions um, that might then lead to different kinds of. Uh, community engagement ministry from our churches um, and, and more holistic ones that see our neighbors as whole people as opposed to just a need to be met. Yeah, or a need to be built or, you know, as, as you talked about, the even more cynical, a way to meet our need, right? We need yeah. more people. We need numbers go up, not numbers go down. And so how do we make, uh, how, do, how do we make our number go up? Uh, which again, it's just not a, not a great way to approach your neighbors. Um, the, 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 you know, the other question that like immediately springs to my mind, it, it is the kind of the broader thought of like, what do you see as the, the kind of thing that separates churches who are able to do this well or religious communities that are able to do this kind of work well um, and those who think this is a lovely process, but at some point just don't make that leap. Like in your work, like what have you seen as the like characteristics, mindsets, whatever, um, for a, a religious community <clears throat> church or whatever to succeed at this kind of work? Yeah, I, I think the biggest struggle that churches have is getting out of an attractional mindset, Yeah, um, <laughs> which has just been the, the kind of central model of uh, reaching out for the past 40, 50 years of just like, all right, we have the big uh, street front, uh, the sign, the um, the beautiful building, um, and the good music on Sunday mornings, the good preacher um, with a, a beautiful family. And then if we have all those things, then people will come to us. Yeah. Um, and the reality is people just aren't coming to us anymore. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That the the things that brought people to us uh, 30, 20 uh, years ago um, just aren't bringing people to us anymore. And so we have to go to the people. And so churches really struggle with that. Um, even as they're embarking on starting something new and fresh, they'll still bring in that attractional mindset. And um, and that's where that those six steps that you uh, mentioned, the, the Fresh Expressions journey, um, which the book walks through, those first three are so important. The listening, the building, uh, the loving people, and then the building community. Um, if you skip those th- three things and just start with a new ministry, kind of a new worship service or a new fresh kind of approach to studying scripture, like if you start with those things, um, you'll you'll be g- you're doing that attractional thing where you try to get people to come to that thing. But if you go out and build relationships 
and and build um, social community. Yeah. Those are the places where you can then discern, all right, what would it look like for us to explore spiritual community together? Um, but churches, like, it's just, it's not instinctual anymore. It was at some point yeah. <laughs> because, uh, because we had that kind of missional mindset, but it's, it got kind of um, erased from our well, memories. But also because the attract for, for a while in the U S church, the attractional stuff just worked. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Like in, in a world where everyone needed everyone, you could assume that every, you know, middle-class person was going to need a church home. Um, you know, I, I remember even in seminary, I did a, a class called, we've talked about this class before. It's, but it was called um, uh, uh, pastoral care uh, with marginalized people, um, and we one of the things we did is we, we went and studied the un, the unmarginalized people, um, and so we went to some mega churches um, in suburban Atlanta, and it was two mega churches right across the street from each other, um, and they were in a fight to see who could out attractional the other, um, yeah. and essentially millions of dollars were getting poured into this literal pitched battle marketing battle. Um, between these two churches and like, you know, I walked into the, the, so just call it, say a children's area is inaccurate. I walked into an, uh, you know, a massive theater just for fourth, fifth and sixth graders. Right. And, and it just, <laughs> it, you know, and I it was, that time was serving a, a small rural congregation, um, you know, and the, you know, the frigid Northern part of Georgia. And I'm just like, Whoa. Um, and so, like, we got, and and there are pockets where it still works, right? Mm-hmm. But you're but you're right that if, if we flip forward the timeline, this is not the way forward. A and B is not really in line with our theology of who we are supposed to be. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, annoyingly, um, a lot of this process is actually be good Christians. <laughs> Like, why can't there be a simple, why can't the answer be, oh, be faithful, be faithful in your own spiritual walk, um, and then be faithful in loving your neighbors, and then seeing what happens to that. I want a six-step, you know, I want a a much, actually, I want a three-step thing that just says, if I can build this one thing, then all of the young people will come back. Darn it, that's so much simpler. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah, and that's you know that goes back to that uh, move away from institutionalism. Yeah. yeah, that's not just in religion, but it's definitely affecting religion. Um, that you know, young people uh, and just more people in general just don't trust large institutions, yeah. um, and so they're not seeking out another institution to be a part of. They're moving away from institutions, um, but they're still spiritual. That's the, the the incredible part about doing ministry in yeah. post-Christian United States is that, uh, you know, we're in, in the UK or, you know, Netherlands or a place like that where they've moved away from spirituality. The Americans are still very spiritual, but they're spiritual but not religious because yeah. they're anti-institutional. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have all these opportunities. So, so like you said, those two mega churches that are fighting over uh, institutionalized Christians, <laughs> really um, they were both... They were both for weren't thinking about the you know forty to sixty percent of their neighbors yeah. who had no intention of going to a church on Sunday mornings, and yet very likely were spiritual. Well, and I, you know this is where 
I, you know, I, I always think of myself, we talked, we actually did last week's episode. We literally talked a ton about the, like the Associated Press did this great uh, uh, series of articles on the growing number of nuns around the world. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I say this a lot, but like I, in some ways, like I'm a really weird fit, right? Because for, I have, you know, you know, I have all the trappings of I should have ended up spiritual but not religious, and somehow I've just decided to stick around. Because I, you know, <laughs> despite the fact that I'm a senior pastor of a highly institutionalized church, I hate it. I hate, you know, I, you know, I am, you know, if the, if it, if anything has the, like, smell of a chain about it, I run away from it as, you know, fast as humanly possible. Um, and so, like, I, I get that, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's been really rare you know, I've been a pastor for 10 years. It's been really rare that I've had the opportunity to pastor a church that I myself would attend if I had the free choice. Um, and that's the like, so, you know, I, I, I'm not perfect cause I am, I am actually practicing despite my best efforts, still a practicing Christian. Um, <laughs> but like, I, you know, I have a lot of empathy for, anti-institutional spiritual but not religious sees how badly the church has just messed this up because i feel all those things inside myself and i just you know try my darn you know i do well some places and not as well other places but try to like make a church that at least i would show up to because you know if it were up to me yeah what the last time i had the free choice of a church to go to it was a church in a storefront in uh, the Oakhurst neighborhood of Atlanta, um, uh, decorated with reclaimed doors and windows from the dump. Um, and it was all a bunch of, I'm going to say, we're not, we don't swear on the show, unfortunately. So I'm going to say darn dirty hipsters like myself. Um, uh, you know, uh, if there was a person over the age of 40 in the room, I'd be shocked. Um, <laughs> And like it was, it was the United Methodist, you know, Fresh Expression, right? And that was the that was the last church I got to choose for me, um, until the you know uh, availability of staff positions and the appointment process took over my religious journey, mm-hmm. um, and I became in charge of like trying to make it better, um, yeah. and so I I feel I feel all of those things, um, and you know some of it is I, I, I try we're we're trying to to do the work, but some of it is. Um, it is, it always warms my heart to hear other folks who take seriously the fact that the world has changed. Like people don't know they even want us, much less need us. Um, we are theoretically, um, are the people tasked with sharing the best story ever told. Um, and we're not connecting. Um, I've been working with a, a a college ministry here in the Houston area, um, that's just been, you know, on the struggle bus for years. And one of the things I've realized is free pizza no longer attracts college students nearly the way it used to. And like, you know, that's the, like, that's the real like basic, but the, like one of the real nuts and bolts of college ministry was free food means you can consistently get people to show up. And that attraction, even that, which I think was one of the most fundamental attractional models that exists, college students are starving. Um, or certainly I was, and I doubt that's changed. Um, even that, like, real basic, like, they'll put up with anything you're going to say um, with with the offer of free pizza. Even that doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I love that uh, image of this, the storefront that, that you were part of, you know, for our, in Western North Carolina. Like, we've got 
people that have just gotten out of incarceration that are connecting together. Um, awesome. uh, and uh, uh, we've got folks that are um, that are gathering around creating art together and and uh, reflecting on scripture as they create this art. We've got um, folks that worship outside by a lake um, and kind of out in the in creation uh, kayakers and paddlers that gather together and um, and incorporate praying and and listening to God by the river as a part of their um, uh, spiritual gathering like just hiking ministries uh, gatherings at pubs and um, at, at parks groups of moms poets all these different places where people um, are building spiritual community, Christian community, um, and, and gathering around Christ, um, and, and it's in these kind of fresh new ways that that maybe aren't fresh to the longer story of the church, but are sure. certainly fresh for the past fifty years. Yeah, and so, fresh to the idea of institutional church as we think of it, for sure. As you're building those those micro faith communities. Right. So the the last piece I, I, I want to ask you about is the like the you know this is me switching you know switch hats for a second go from you know disaffected millennial churchgoer which I am um, to senior pastor that has to sustain a, has has payroll to make right um, is in your kind of experience in this work um, understanding that we shouldn't have the goal of this becomes a church-shaped object. Mm-hmm. 100% agree. Couldn't agree more, in fact. How do you, what ways have you seen for sustaining the very real, like, yes, it runs in the Holy Spirit, but also, like, sust- financially and logistically sustaining these va- alternative models of faith communities, right? That doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, we, you know, the our version of that conversation is... We don't want to go to our majority immigrant congregation and go, hi, we need more of your money because we have to make payroll, even though many people on our staff make more than you do. Right. Like um, and so what you know, what successes have you seen in this work becoming not just spiritually fulfilling, because obviously it needs to be that, but also just logistically sustainable? Yeah. I think that's a long answer, so it's not one thing. I think there's lots of things that will help us um, transition into that future. Um, One, I think if if we can spend less, that would be important. (laughs) That would be important, yeah. Yeah. Let me talk to you you about insuring this building. Let me talk to you about the financial burden of insuring this monstrosity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm with you. Less overhead. Uh Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Building it, building insurance, pastoral salaries, like all kinds of things that are just far, far more expensive than we can afford anymore. And so if we can't afford them through tithes and tithes are going to get smaller, not bigger. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because going back to millennials, which I'm one, we have student loans. Uh We have increased health insurance. I know. They just, you said to start repaying them now um, this month. We have... Yeah, I mean, if so, if a millennial just bought a house, they have a seven percent mortgage. Yeah. Like, like we don't have money to tithe, yeah. mm-hmm. and it's not that we're not like spiritually healthy. It's just that 
Like we have a lot more things eating yeah. up our money than Amen. boomers did. Um, and so tithes are just, yeah, so the attendance is going down, but also the ability to tithe is going down. And so we have to either spend less or come up with creative ways of funding ministry. And so, you know, if if a church building is really important to your congregation, finding ways to leverage that asset yeah. for alternative income generation. And that could be renting out space. That could be, um, like I heard of a church in Chicago that um, used uh, some of the, um, that took out a, a, a mortgage on some of the, property that they owned so that they could buy a grocery store yeah. that was a fully functioning grocery store. Um, and now that income from the grocery store feeds that. I've heard of churches that own a Subway franchise. Like, like we got to get creative. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and, and, and in your own conference, um, uh, you, y'all have the uh, Wesley uh, development. Um, yep. And so y'all, I, in another meeting in the other part of my life, I got, we, we, we had a meeting with them. And so your annual conference has been leading a lot of the work of how do we use real estate um, in a more sustainable way. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. A, a church in Houston. I, I imagine that that property is valuable. It is. Um, uh, yeah. To, and, to quote Ocean's yeah. 11 for a second, the, the problem is how do you fence it? Right. Like, yes. Right. It is inherently valuable. The question is, how do you unlock that value? Yep. Yeah. And and so, yeah, you're right that in our conference, we have several experiments um, happening around um, property development. A lot of it's uh, housing related, um, whether that's affordable housing or middle middle, uh, housing. Um, So housing that people in uh, middle class can afford. you know, uh, it's all, there's all kinds of possibilities of um, developing retail space, yeah. all these different things that we can do with our property um, and then still utilize our, our buildings for what we need them for. Um, uh, but then uh, with fresh expressions in, in general, often starting one of these doesn't cost any yeah, money. Like a absolutely. lot of them are lay yeah. led. Yeah. Um, mm. So like – Starting new forms of church doesn't ha- it doesn't have to be expensive. It can be quite simple and quite cheap. Yeah. Um, we give out micro grants for two hundred fifty dollars um, for our fresh expressions in our conference. And I was talking to a guy who was starting a hiking fresh expression a couple weeks ago. I said, "Hey, we got this grant." He's like, "I don't know how I'd spend that." So it's <laughs> like, like I can't even like give a, give him two hundred fifty bucks. Nice. He doesn't. He doesn't he's free. It. He's free. Yeah. He's a lay person. He's a lay person that's deeply committed to his church and to his neighbors and sees this opportunity to yeah. uh, help people encounter Christ in nature and like he doesn't need any money for it. Yeah. So it's like, um, so. Well, and, and, uh, and, and then in some ways, my question, you know, again, I, I as the person who has the responsibility for running a church, I have, you know, even my anti-institutional personality, I have an institutional bias, right? Um, that in the end, it doesn't cost anything to make a relationship, right? right? And 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 all of these other things are theoretically tools that we have that enable our core function of building relationships, of loving people, of build, of being a part of building community. Yep. Um, and and then you know I get the question a lot like okay well if this isn't going to bring people to our church then why do we do it <laughs> sure um, okay. and of course like because of Jesus <laughs> because and like Jesus. the Great Commission because yeah. Jesus you know <laughs> we like that guy 
But I've, I've also, like, if, if you're an institutional person, I have witnessed the act of reaching out yeah. actually helps your church that is within the walls. Like, yeah. the act of stop, yeah. stopping thinking about yourself actually ends up being the way that your church becomes healthy because it brings a healthy energy, a, a healthy um, focus on what is important, and that's what, like, attracts the remaining Americans that will come to an institutional form of church. You know, they want to be a part of a church that does stuff out in the community, yeah. that's active, that um, is not just internally focused. Nobody wants to be a part of a, a group that they're just bickering about the kind of internal... Carpet color. Politics. or mm-hmm. yeah. 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 So Emily, want to be a part of a, a movement. Yeah. Emily and I have seen that in, in our own work together. Um, we were part of a church in a small town that just didn't have a lot of community gathering space, and so we um, opened a pumpkin patch every October. We ran it for a month and used it as an opportunity for community organizations to have events and uh, local vendors to promote their businesses and people also just come. And, you know, the pumpkins cost money, but getting into the pumpkin patch didn't cost anything. And, like, we got to just hang out with, like, 2,000 people over the course of a month. How many of them joined our church? Almost none of them. But in the doing of that, the congregation came together. And, like, folks, you know, we saw, like, it was not necessarily, like, you came because of Pumpkin Patch, but because we were a church that, you know, was not in really focus, but was doing something. And, you know, it, this was, like, this was not traditional community service. We didn't, I guess we handed out free reading books. Yeah, um, but we other read than, to children and stuff, but yeah, other than that, it was a lot of weird and different venue yeah. events. Yeah, but part of it, like, for us, there was the, like, it made a little bit of money that more or less paid for itself, plus a little extra um, but if it was a f- purely financial thing, it was a boondoggle, right? You know, a month of our lives to make seven grand in profit is just not. Those are the there real are numbers. There are way easier ways to fundraise that much. <laughs> there are way easier ways to make seven grand. Um, and no, it, it was not going to, it did not create like a stream of new members, right? But it did shift that mindset of we're an outward focused church. And so folks who wanted an outward focused church, tended to find their way to us because we were doing this other thing. I will say it's weird that it's October right now and yeah. I'm not working a pumpkin patch. I I've know. had pumpkin patch withdrawals <laughs> this month. I know. It's a little strange. <laughs> I, I had that last year when it was like the end of September and I wasn't like dying of heat exhaustion inside a tractor trailer um, nearly dying in a pumpkin avalanche. A thing that happened many times. Um, Luke, I want to thank you uh, uh, for being on. Um, if, if Is there like one specific thing of your work you just, you want to plug like a last, like, hey, if you could, you know, buy the book, like what, what, what is the, you know, what's your plug? Like what, what do you want, um, what do you want folks to go to? Yeah, um, the the listingchurch.com, it's got the spiritual listening plan, which I mentioned, and I also have a substack that I write on um, top, the topic of community listening um, for churches. So um, that would be the, the plug uh, these days. That's where I'm putting my creative energy. So. Fantastic. Oh, no, again, we, we, we deep, deeply appreciate you being on and deeply appreciate this the work you are doing, right? Yes, thank one you. Of the, one of the fun things about this show for us is we get to meet people like you. 
um, and that there are other, you know, it can feel very, this work can be very isolating of like, you know, we all of us, I think, in our, in our own context can feel like the, the voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare you the way of the Lord. Um, and it is nice to know that we are not, you know, that we are not alone um, in this work. If you have, if you at home have feedback for this show or want to hear, have your thoughts read on air, uh, just email us thegoodnessofgodpod at gmail.com. That is thegoodnessofgodpod at gmail.com. This podcast and everything else we do here in the Media Lab um, is a product of Servants of Christ United Methodist Parish, deep in the heart of Southeast Houston, and made possible by an innovator's grant by the Texas Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. Um, we will be back next week for another uh, one of these. Uh, if you are interested, we're, watch the movie Jesus Revolution. We are going to be talking about that movie uh, next week. So watch the movie um, if you want, or we're going to spoil. It's, by the way, based on history, so we're going to spoil the whole film for you. Uh, We're going to do that next week. Uh, But in the meantime, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you next week. (laughs) 